We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McEachran, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. Temple Adornment is a remarkable journal series exploring contemporary tattooing and spirituality. It collects candid conversations with tattooers who work within and uniquely push forward the Americana tattoo tradition. Its creator, Michael Bushman, is a practicing social worker and psychotherapist. His path in spirituality and tattoo join together to create Temple Adornment. He told me that a publication combining tattoo and spirituality needed to be in the world, and it wasn't, so we created it. On this episode of Eager to Know, my conversation with Michael Bushman. I think it's fantastic that you had this idea of something that should be in the world and you realized it wasn't there. And so you just created it. I appreciate that so much. I was very, very nervous about that. I didn't want to step on any toes. I'm not a tattooer. And so I definitely received the blessing of many people along the way, the encouragement of many people within the tattoo community. It felt like a blessing, like, you know, you, you go, go forward and, and do this. It was very much figured out as we went along. I really just tried to look toward other tattoo books like Tattoo Time, Ed Hardy's book, book series for some kind of inspiration or direction in terms of, of formatting and layout and that kind of thing. Can you tell me a bit about the emotions, feelings, and thoughts that you experienced? Um, going through a creative process like that doesn't always feel good. You know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It's not, you know, it's scary, self doubt, all that type of stuff. Can you share the experience, thoughts, and feelings that you went through during creating something like your books? Yeah. I appreciate that question so much. And I know as an individual, I'm always really curious about folks' experiences in this territory too. In my anecdotal experience, it was definitely a very difficult process emotionally. I mean, with the first book and with each of the books, there's been uh, definitely a support and a presence of the folks who are interviewed there's encouragement from them. It wasn't as though I was entirely alone, but there is so much of the creative work of the actual making of the thing. Hours and hours and hours of just being alone with the work and your thoughts about it. So many times the thought of sort of like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this again? Like, this is so unpleasant in this moment. <laughs> and kind of doubting that it's a good idea, doubting that I have what is needed to do the project justice. And I think that the encouragement from others along the way was really helpful in that regard. But it's been an interesting personal psychological learning process of being able to kind of tolerate that aloneness and that doubt and still show up to the work. Were you surprised at those thoughts and feelings or did you expect that because you're also a licensed therapist. So you are kind of familiar with the, you know, some of these dynamics, uh, but 
that doesn't mean that you weren't surprised by it. Were you surprised? Did you just think that this was going to be an incredible, positive, creative journey, experience, process, et cetera? I wasn't surprised, both informed by my work as a therapist, but also because I've been in this mind my whole life. And I kind of expected like, oh, it's been, you know, there's been a lot of self-doubt along the way. There's no reason it won't show up with this thing too. One thing I was surprised with though, definitely as it relates to the creative process was after the first one was created, we had an event to celebrate them, to celebrate its publication. The tattooers who were featured in it all came to Indianapolis. And it was this really cool event where they made paintings and, and hung them like we had kind of an art show of their work. And then they made tattoos at the opening. I remember afterward, I just like emotionally fell into kind of a depressive episode, which I had never experienced before after a, a big creative project being pushed out into the world, but, uh, you know, friends helped kind of name it almost like a, like a postpartum period. It was done. Like there wasn't any more work left to be done with it. And I just, I just kind of nosedived emotionally for maybe a month. That was surprising to be sure. Thoughts and feelings are so interesting. And I like how you said that you've experienced self-doubt, you know, that it's kind of like part of you. So you knew that that was going to, you know, rear its ugly head in, mm -hmm. in this situation, you know, doing this podcast and starting to do painting and just kind of doing what I want to do has been a big eye opener to me about all of that stuff, because in the past, I would have feelings, negative feelings, and I always blame them on the fact that I wasn't in the right job. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't in the right career. I am being forced to do work that's not creative. So mm -hmm. I thought that once I got out of that, all of those, like I thought painting was just going to be this pleasurable experience. I'm just going to be in front of my canvas, which is completely ridiculous. That's, you know, I quit. And at first I thought, well, what's wrong? What am I doing wrong? I yeah. like left my career to paint and I feel I'm, this doesn't feel good all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Um, and I realized that that's just part of the process. I, I, I definitely, I definitely had <laughs> the same I've had the same thoughts before. I, I definitely was operating under the same assumptions. I think it's been through my own process, my own personal therapy and my own therapy training that it's been helpful to, to reckon it both intellectually and then, and then experientially with the sense that, oh, well, yes. I mean, there are some occasions where, where in a change would be really helpful toward that end. Like, like we maybe do need to set that that boundary at work or shift jobs or something like that, because there, there just isn't any way that we're going to be able to get our needs met. But so many times I feel like we're put in positions where, okay, no, I'm, I'm actually doing work that's really meaningful to me. And I feel like a lot of discomfort <laughs> come up in the process. There's a, a quote that's attributed to Steve Hayes, who's one of the founders, one of the creators of a, a kind of psychotherapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. It's something like, um, it's not about feeling better, it's about feeling better. The focus of, of psychotherapy or, or any kind of process of healing isn't necessarily, like it's not necessarily as helpful for us to be so focused on 
feeling less lousy, like not feeling the, the shitty feeling that is showing up in the moment, but instead, how can we be with that discomfort uh, more skillfully, more mm-hmm. effectively? Can you tell me a little bit about your practice? Do you work with, in, you work with individuals, I assume? My wife and I started a small private therapy practice that really holds as a, as a core value access. We're a sliding scale therapy practice. We accept all forms of Medicaid and most forms of commercial insurance. So I feel like therapy and mental health and depression, anxiety, this stuff is completely mainstream right now. Like everybody's talking about it. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in high school, someone I knew had a friend who she disclosed to me suffered from at the time it was called manic depression. Mm-hmm. It was someone that was in our high school. And I remember just being shocked. Like I had never heard of such a thing. And I feel like that type of stuff, I think that's called bipolar disorder now, but I feel like that stuff's all over the place. It's so commonly talked about. Do you think that that is making people feel better in general? Because I feel like everyone's more depressed and more anxious. So I'm confused about all of this because I feel like things have gotten worse and we're talking about it more. Yeah. Am I crazy? <laughs> I think that, I think, I mean, your, your experience is similar to mine. Uh, I'm not entirely certain what to, to make of it either because, you know, that, that one component of it, if we just take the fact that we're all talking about psychotherapy more, I think that's great, right? Like theoretically, we're sort of destigmatizing going to therapy, we're destigmatizing meeting diagnostic criteria, like, like having diagnoses by being able to talk about it a bit more. And though I think that as with anything, when it com- becomes mainstream, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's watered down to and, and gets kind of thrown around in ham-fisted ways. Plus, all of the mental health related information that's getting thrown around online is a part of that broader stream of all the other information. I can't remember different studies have been done on like our, our media consumption now versus 20 years ago or something like this. And we're just, we're all sort of drinking from uh, the fire hydrant of information. And we don't totally know what the longitudinal, in a a longitudinal way, we don't know what that's doing to our attention spans, our mental health, our emotional health, and so on. So I think we know, you think we don't know? Well, we kind of know, and we kind of know it's really shitty actually, right? Like it's really bad for us. (laughs) My statement was that I feel like people feel worse. Yeah. Am I misreading this? Or are people just talking about it more? Like, I guess I'm wondering, did ever, was everyone in my high school depressed and anxious and all of that stuff and no one just talked about it? Or did people feel less of that back then? I don't know. I think it's a great question. Because if you think about it back then, like the context of you all in high school, you know, as you were, as you're kind of noting the, the friend of a friend who had manic depression, who had bipolar disorder, that was just like, you were scandalized by finding that out. So to some extent, it, like the context of that high school, it just like wasn't, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't kind of sanctioned for you to have those particular challenges. I'm sure many people suffered. I'm sure many people in high school 
were actually suffering and would have met diagnostic criteria for various mental health disorders. But I'm with you. I think, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we do seem less happy. Uh, it, it does seem like there's a lot more suffering. But could it also be that it's more acceptable to talk about and people have more channels to display their dissatisfaction on Facebook. So everybody sees it. So who knows? I mean, it goes back to hardwired, you know, we all, it has the, has the, the curve of how people are hardwired in happiness. Has that changed or is it just all, it's still the same. It's the same distribution of people that are unhappy versus happy, but we just have more visibility into people expressing how they're feeling. I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah. There's a part of me that really wants to believe it is something like what you just said. You think about wisdom traditions over history. I mean, Buddhism, I don't identify as a Buddhist, but I have a real interest in Buddhism and mindfulness meditation and the acceptance and commitment therapy and other kinds of therapy, psychotherapies in that ilk have borrowed from Buddhism, there are aspects of all world religions that seem to be responding to the quandary of human suffering, (laughs) uh, including Buddhism. Acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, it's the therapy that I have most training in. It's the therapy I'm using most often and, and framing things most often in my work with clients. In a nutshell, it is mindfulness and acceptance based practices and processes so that we can learn to relate to our painful thoughts and feelings more skillfully so that we're sort of less yanked around by our painful thoughts and feelings. Yanked around meaning we're more observing them. More observing them, we're less reactive to them. I think that is so important, but keep going. Yeah, no, I'm with you. There's there's those skills and it's sort of in service of getting really clear about our values, more values like what where in my life does the richest meaning pool? What's my North Star stuff? What am I orienting my life toward? So getting clear about what are my values and how am I acting in accordance with those values in my life? How do I kind of create a life of uh, vitality and richness and meaning? So it just is going back and forth between those these these quadrants of the work of relating to my inner experiences, my private experiences, less reactively um, with more of a sense of choice about how I respond to them so that I can show up for my life in the ways that are really meaningful to me. But it also sounds like there is a proactivity aspect of it where you're helping people take specific actions to get them in line with what they value. Absolutely. Which is why the therapy has actually been, I know less about this, this kind of work. I've not done this. I've not worked in this field, but I'm aware that, that the therapy has been operationalized in a kind of organizational psychology setting, like an organizational management setting. So there's a guy I did a training, training or two with a guy named DJ Moran, who used to run a consulting organization. And he would help, I think like union organizations incorporate acceptance and commitment training to help manage workspaces, to help like create, create good work cultures. And these are with folks who are, who are like, like craftsmen, like, like union builders. Um, 
it's not like the necessarily the stereotypical therapy going group. So yeah, it, yeah, yeah. No, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So that sounds fascinating. I wish the therapy that I had done in my twenties was that it was not that. So are you saying that that's what you do or you don't do? I do. I do. I don't, okay. I don't. Yeah. I don't do like the organizational stuff. Right. But I you do, do the act. Individual therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I do act. Wow. That people. sounds fantastic. That's, yeah. that sounds really, really, um, that makes perfect sense to me, especially in the past three years, but since doing this podcast, I've learned so much about, I've learned so much. My view on people has really changed and that makes perfect sense. Like if you described that to me before I started doing this podcast, my brain wouldn't get activated like the way it is now. Yeah. But um, having these conversations with people, a hundred of them, um, it's really changed my view on humans and people. Yeah. What a cool, uh, it's so cool to notice. And also what a powerful practice this that is, this is that you've created for yourself. Like you are, because I mean, I don't know, we could have a hundred episodes ago, we could have talked about these ideas intellectually, but you've, you've submitted yourself to this process of interacting with people for a hundred plus different conversations. Yeah. And, and you've been in some ways transformed by them. I, I, I think about, um, I ha- um, I've totally been transformed. Yeah. And what's interesting about it is I'm a curious, I've always been a curious person. So I'm always learning. I'm always asking questions. I've had a very varied life in terms of different careers, different types of companies, big, small. I have uh, different types of friends. So it's not like I was living in a cave and suddenly I learned all this stuff. Like I've always been curious. So the fact that I have learned so much and kind of got transformed through this process is shocking to me. I never, never would have thought that. I just thought I was going to be sharing conversations with painters to people, but it really turned into something different. So it's been amazing. It's a testament to your, to the, to the texture, to the quality of your curiosity too. Cause I feel like, I mean, not to, not to, you know, naysay anybody else, but I, I imagine not everybody who's gone through the process that you've gone through would be as transformed which I think just means you're, you're, you've, it's really cool that you've been open to what's, what's been offered to you through that process. Yeah. Um, there, there has to have been a kind of receptivity uh, in you that allowed for that transformation to, to take place. Um, um, two things that that brings up. One is a, a quote by, the, the rabbi and Jewish scholar, Abraham Joshua Heschel, which is uh, prayer may not save us, but may make us worthy of being saved. Um, which I like, that's just been stuck in my mind since I read it, which, I mean, he's speaking from a theological perspective, but if you just look at it from a behavioral perspective, it's like the, like, sure, prayer is a good idea, but what's actually impactful about the behavior, I mean, trade out prayer with, with a, a, paint, a painting practice. To paint a picture is a good idea, like neat, but the habituated commitment of sitting down and painting, like the, the visiting a habituated painting practice, that's what has transformative power. 
that's what will, will change you. Uh, does that make sense? That makes perfect sense because I think that the ability of our brains to adapt and learn and change based on habit and repetition is unbelievable. And yeah. it's, and I learned this through, and I think I recently talked about this on the podcast, I'm learning how to play piano mm. and I didn't know anything about it. And I had to, so I'll get like my book and there's like a section of music that I would start to play. And I do you play, are you a musician at all? I, I am. I, it's been years uh, since I really, okay. played, you know, but yeah. Yeah. So like you're to learn to play music and read music, like you're using parts of your brain that are not normally working together. You got your fingers, you got like, you got to pay attention to where the note is. So I would start to play something to learn a piece and it's impossible. Like there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do this. And within an hour I could play it. And I was completely blown away that a human brain can adapt that quickly just by the practice, just by practice in repetition, completely blown away at 53 years old, uh, that, that you could do that because it was just an example. It was so, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. It was just so isolated situation yeah. where yeah. I'm like a lab rat. I basically was like a lab rat being forced to do this thing yeah. and I could do it. And yeah. it's basically what you're saying. Like you, so it kind of changed my outlook on what humans are able to do if you just stick with something. Mm -hmm. You can do it. I think you I think people underestimate what they what they can do if yeah. they just stick with it and are focused. This is such a huge part of the of of that acceptance and commitment therapy work too. We, like you create these little behavioral experiments with it all the time. <laughs> like I mean, I mean, I guess piano might not be, there are probably people who have a really aversive historical relationship with piano. Like ah, I can, I could never, I could never learn that. I've always wanted to, but not for me. Nope. Too dumb. Uh, so there, there, so, you know, we'd kind of zoom in on that stuff. Okay. What's your mind giving you about the prospect of playing piano? These, these old familiar stories, what emotions show up? Uh, uh, sadness, shame, uh, et cetera. What, what feeling, what sensations show up in the body about it? Uh, you know, lump in my throat, chest constriction. Uh, and then through the, you know, through these various processes, we, we might try to help this person take those thoughts less seriously to recognize that those thoughts, you know, aren't gospel truth. They're just it's just more stuff their mind's giving them. And their thoughts. To, they are thoughts. They are thoughts. As painful as those emotions are that arise when they're thinking about this stuff, can we make space for them? Can we relate to them in a different way that we don't have to sort of shove them away? Because what the research shows us is that our attempts to avoid or control our unwanted private experiences like thoughts and feelings makes them come back more frequently and with greater intensity. So can we make room for those those painful, uh, uncomfortable, aversive feelings and sensations. And all of that alongside playing the piano. Yes. Or showing up to it alongside, not in yeah. spite of, sorry, it went on for a little long with that, but it's like, it's, it's, it's an and, not a but, it's alongside. 
Yeah. And I think the other thing is, I think when you ignore feelings or stuff them down, I personally, and I'm not a psychologist, I think your feelings are telling you something. Uh, I look at them as like a, I used to work in the chemical industry and I would visit these gigantic chemical plants that were like the size of a small town and there would be a control center. And there's like guys in the control center and there's lights and dials and red lights flashing. And that's how I think of my thoughts and feelings. It's like my control center. It's telling me, you need to just pay attention to this. Don't ignore it. You don't need to like act on it immediately, but you need to observe what it is because it's probably telling you something. But that's such a great example that you just said about like, you know, feeling the feelings and continue and continue playing the piano in the same way you did. And you were writing your book, you had this creative initiative of this book and you were bombarded with thoughts and feelings and all sorts of stuff. Um, Old and you stuff got- too much of it. Like, like these yeah. are, these are reruns of my, what my mind's giving me about. That's what, that's what I meant by like, yeah, I'm, I've been in a doubtful, you know, uh, self-critical mind for a long time now. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it sounds to me like that may never go away. Like that may be just something that you're just going to have to, those, those negative feelings, you may just have to deal with like, this is, this is part of my brain and I'm going to just have to deal with it. And it's annoying that it keeps coming back, even though I've proven to myself that it's not true, but you got maybe just, that's part of the acceptance part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the most famous act books is called The Happiness Trap by a guy named Russ Harris. And that's the basic premise. It's like, like so, so much of, so many of us want to be happy all the time. And that's not possible. It's not realistic. And it's not even a good idea. (laughs) Uh, Because so much of what's most meaningful to us in this life isn't purely um, happy. Uh, so, so to just focus on happy as cool as it is, is to really limit the richness of what life can be. You know, I mean, that's the basic premise of the happiness trap that we get yeah. caught in this, in this ruse, uh, by approaching it like that. And then it goes about describing everything we've just been talking about. Yeah, no, that, that sounds like a really interesting book. Um, I'm not sure if I ever fell into that happiness trap, but I do know that I used to think that if I wasn't, if I, I, if I was feeling negative thoughts, that that meant something was dramatically wrong. And I think this has to do with, I grew up in like a crazy childhood that wasn't always the healthiest environment. And so there were a lot of things that if I was feeling negative feelings, like I felt when I was a kid, I would think that I'm in a really bad situation that I need to get out of. I I know what you mean for sure. So your book, let's get back to the book. We, you have three books and they're all about tattoos and spirituality, including one all about George Clauba, who was a guest on the podcast. One of my favorite guests ever. They're they're all limited runs. And I know the latest one, you did 300 and there are some left. Yeah, there there are about thirty or so left of this this first run. Um, the other two have have sold out. Uh, okay, and where can somebody go to get the? I'll put the link in the show notes. But thanks. Um, yeah, uh, we we just we have a, te- a big cartel. So uh, Temple Adornment 
www.bigcartel.com is is the um, that's the purchase site. We we are probably going to re-release uh, the first issue, um, meaning the first book. Yeah, sorry, book number yeah, one. The first the first book, um, just because. While I I think that rare art objects are very cool, uh, it feels much more important to me that people have access to the information in these books than it is to have something especially rare. Uh, uh, So uh, the first book sold out um, in like two weeks (laughs) uh, when that edition of 300 and people continue to ask about it. So we want to be sure that everybody can get one of these books that that wants them. Um, so there's just about 30 left for for this publication with George. Um, I don't know when we'll print more, but um, but we want everybody to have them who wants them. And okay. Everybody should want them. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This was really great. This definitely went into directions that. I hadn't planned and that are a little bit different from what I traditionally do on the podcast, but that's what it felt like the right thing to do. Thank you so much for having me. I've been really grateful to, to know you. My name is Ricky McGeckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast.